Turn your Bibles to 1 John. Thank you, Ed and Ed. Ed, for that great selection of songs. And Ed for Ed Goad for the thoughts around the communion. He has a way of expressing himself. Always get a good illustration. Makes me want to think about that a little bit more. I'm glad that we have, I have uh, had a good weekend. I have a bunch of family members here from Oklahoma and Ohio and I think it's all Kentucky or something. Um, and they're they're over there. So I want to introduce them all to you. But my little brother and his wife and my one of my little sisters and little nieces and some great nieces. So it's been great for us. They have a long ways to go. And so they want me to preach a short, short sermon. <laughs> I know it's, it's inside joke. All right. But we'll do our best anyway. Um, last week we got back into first John after being away for a while and I reminded you all and reminded myself three ways which we come to understand this, this little letter of first John spoke to a preacher over the, on the phone the other day and we got into first John and he said, you know, it, it always confuses me. He keeps on repeating the same thing over and over. And I said, well, that that's true. But as we looked at this letter, as we began to reflect on, on the letter and how to understand it, one of the things that, that helps me is to look at John's stated purposes. He states why he wrote this letter. And when we see that and we, as we read it, begin to reflect on those three purposes, it helps us understand this, uh, this letter. And you should know by now, if you've been sitting here and listening, the three purposes of the book of John, the letter, first letter of John. And the first one is in chapter one, verse four. And he says, I wrote, I write this so that you will have what? Joy. Good. Some have been listening. Joy and obedience to the full. Number two, that you will not sin, that you will not sin. Chapter two, verse one. And then right at the end, he, he looks back and he says, I've written this to you so that you will know that you have eternal life. Good. We are, we're, we all get A's today. And, you know, that's why he wrote it. If we keep looking at those purposes as we read this, we'll begin to understand this letter in a better way. The second thing that helps me understand this letter is to realize that he is God focused in his presentation, not man focused. And and, in fact, he keeps pushing us back to the God focused part as we are as we are tempted to move back to the man focused part of of the gospel. Ed Goad said it this way. He said the two things, either there's a religion, there's two different types of religion, a religion of works or religion of grace. That's another way of saying man focused and God focused. Uh, Chapter one, verse five, he says, uh, God, this is the message. This is the message. Here's here's the good news. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Here's the message of the gospel from the first to the last is God is light. Nothing about us in there. The message of salvation is about God and the message of living in our salvation is about God. Number three that helps us understand this letter. John writes in a circular manner, not a linear manner. He doesn't write point A, point B, point C. He states something and then he expands on it and then he'll expand on that. And we'll see that as we uh, come into this lesson today. I want to follow up on two items that we talked about last week before we get into the text. 
First, that concept of knowing you have eternal life. For some, that might sound arrogant. To claim that you know that you have eternal life. But we need to understand that assurance is not equal to arrogance. And the reason is this. Assurance is God-focused. Arrogance is me-focused. Uh, when, when I am assured of my salvation, it is based in the promises of God. When I am arrogant about it, it, that, it is based in my own self-effort. I know that can be a line easily crossed. It depends on who you're listening to. It depends on if we're focused on God or if we're focused on the promises of God or we're focused on our own efforts. And so we're constantly called to remember in whom we have believed. In whom we have believed and that he is able to entrust what we what he is able to keep what we've entrusted to him. John later on expands on this, on this knowing that you have believed. And he asked this question, but what if your heart condemns you? Later on, he expands, he says, but what if your heart condemns you? What if you feel lost? What if you're not sure of that? The answer is this. Read ahead if you'd like to. But guess what? It's God focused. I'm not going to get there yet that we're going to get there in a few months. But he he sits there and he says, when your heart condemns you, guess what? God is greater than your heart. God is greater than how you feel about it. The second item I want to follow up on, it has to do with being God focused. We have a saying. I've heard it. It says something like this. Do your best. God does the rest. And that appeals to us. I think we say, oh, that sounds good. And we also, uh, it, it appeals to the American way of thinking about things. Just do your best. God makes up the difference. We have a problem, two problems with that. First, it, it appeals to our flesh. It appeals to me, what I do. Which is another way of saying it's a me-focused message. I do the work. God makes any, uh, up any shortfall. Additionally, the, uh, the problem with that statement comes in asking, well, what is my best? If you think about that, do your best. God does the rest. My question is, well, what's your best? How consistent are we at doing our best? Let me give you an illustration. Have you ever made a list of five or six things that you want to do today? How well do you, if you're really motivated, 10, 15 things that you're going to accomplish today? And you do your best. And you look at that list and you know, if I did my best, I could accomplish all those. If you're anything like me, you get one and a half done. <laughs> at the most. And you, you look at it and you go, oh, I, was, I was set out to the beginning of the day to do my best. I tried, I tried hard, I failed, I feel miserable. So I asked God, well, forgive me for messing up there. I'll try again, I try it with greater will, and I fail. 
And then I redetermine. I repent. I reevaluate. I restart. I give it another go. I really try hard. And I fail again. And then that brings us to the point, well, how can God put up with a failure like me? Did you get it? We're, we're me focused again. How can God put up with a failure like me? And the focus becomes on me and what I'm doing. I'm so focused, me focused and living the Christian life. I don't realize how me focused I am. How self-centered I am on what I do and how what I accomplish. And so instead of do your best, God does the rest, it should be this. God does it all, so do your best. Because God does it all. And if we really understand the motivation that we'll receive when we look to God and see that he's done it all, we will be motivated to do our best. I don't think we fully understand that. We feel like we've got to have some other external motivation, some kind of force to be able to do our best. But I believe the Bible teaches us that if we look to God and we concentrate on what he's done for us and we really begin to grasp that, we'll learn to do our best. The gospel is all about God from beginning to end. And first John brings this out. The Bible brings this out. I want to. Uh, show you this in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. And I just picked out one passage that was actually text to me without knowing that I was going to be preaching on this. And I and I just I'm pulling out several sections in, the, in about 10 verses here. And it says, this is what the Lord says. This is in Isaiah 43. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? And I'd like to just stop there. That's the sermon right there. Don't you get it, God says? Don't you see what I'm I'm doing? I am making a way in the desert. I provide water in the desert. And he's symbolically talking about salvation, by the way. The people I form for myself that they may proclaim my praise. You have not called upon me. You haven't done anything. You have not brought me burnt offerings. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your offenses. And then notice here, even though you have been, you have burdened God with your sins. I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I'm going to forgive you because this is who I am, God says, not because of what you've done. Because what you've done is you've burdened me with your sins. That's all you've done. It doesn't matter how good you are. You have burdened God with your sins. And God says, even with that, because of the character of who I am, because I am a loving and forgiving God. And he says this over and over throughout the scriptures. I am going to blot out your transgressions because that's who I am. I have some other passages I'm not going to go into. Ezekiel chapter 36 says the same thing. Verses 22, 23, that whole chapter is great. Mark chapter 12 says it this way. The Lord has done this. The Lord has done this. And it's marvelous in our eyes. If we perceive it, it's marvelous in our eyes. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It is by grace you've been saved. And through faith. And this is not of yourself. It's the gift of God.
But let's go into 1 John, chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11, and I believe we're actually going to cover this whole section. Dear friends, I am not writing a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is a message you've heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command. It's truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. I entitled this, The New Old Command That Takes Effect in Our Lives, verse 8. Now, last week we looked at verse 7, the old command. And we saw that this old command is wrapped up in the logos or the person of Jesus. It's not a new legalistic code. It's not a new list of rules. It's not regulations from a new covenant, but it's a new life. And it's based in a new relationship anchored in the person of Jesus. And he said, you've had this from the day of your birth, from the day of your new birth. When you were born anew, you were placed into Christ and Christ came into you. So this old command is as old as you are spiritually. For some of you, that's 50, 60 years. For some of you, it's last week. And then he talks about this new old command. He says in verse 8, yet I am writing you a new command. There's a sense in which it is new. And this new here means brand new, uniquely new. It's as it's a, a, a way of describing it as this. There was a time when we when not we, but when society traveled by horseback, horse and carriage. And then the automobile was invented. And so this was a brand new, unique way of transportation. So we went from horse to car. A different kind of new is like the new model of, the, of a car. Uh, that's not this kind of new. This is like a brand new new, something you've not seen before. And so that's what he's talking about. This is something brand new. And he says, and its truth is seen in you. The reality of the uniqueness of Jesus is revealed. This what what is being revealed is the, is the uniqueness of Jesus. It is about And I ask the question, what is it about Jesus that's different? That's new. That's radically new. We could spend a lot of time digging through one of the Gospels and studying the unique person of Jesus. And yeah, we've done that. Do you? Here's the reason why. The reason why we spent so much time looking at the Gospel of John and we looked at the Gospel of Mark before that. It's because there's something radically new about Jesus, and we don't perceive it sometimes. We don't really see it. In one word, we could say it's love. And it's not the worldly love. It's a radical, new, God-like love. Jesus described this in John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another. And actually, that goes all the way back to Leviticus. But he says, love one another. And then he says, even as I have loved you, so you love one another. Here's the newness. If we can understand how God, how Jesus loved us, 
When we understand how Jesus loved us, then we will understand how we are to love one another. And that's the struggle that we have. We really have never grasped, and we won't grasp it. It's something we grow in and mature in, how God loves us. We're going to expand on this. John's going to expand on it later on. He's going to talk about it in more detail. We're just touching on it. This is the introduction. But then he says, it's also in you. Notice that. He says, um, the truth, it's truth is seen in him. We'd agree with that. But it says, and it's seen in you. This is, a, this is encouraging when we look at this. If you're a Christian, the truth of God's love is being displayed in your life. Wake up for a moment. Just wake up for a moment. You can go back to sleep in a second. The truth of God's love is seen in you. And if you're like me, you're thinking, really? Oh, my, the truth of God's love is seen in Ed. The truth of God's son is seen in this Ed and that Ed. But the truth of God's love is seen in me. You may struggle with it. You may not be satisfied with the fruit of it in your life. But the fact of the matter, God says, it's in you. It's in you because God said, when you came into relationship with me, when you were born in you, the Holy Spirit was placed in you. He gave you a new heart. You are a new person in Christ. And if God said it's true, it is true. And he is working in your life right now. And you're beginning to display that love in his life. But it is a growing and maturing process. It is a process. You don't go from being totally unloving to totally loving. You don't go from being not like Christ to being totally, totally like Christ. And the way John describes it here, he says the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. The darkness is passing away. That describes all of us in Christ. The darkness is in the process of falling by the wayside. And that's what the tense of this verb is. It's in the process of passing. A progression of darkness. Being diminished as light takes greater and greater effect in our daily living. And we all struggle with that to one degree or another. We struggle with how we love God and how we love one another. There's an element of darkness in, in all of us. But it's as if the light of God is shining on us as the sun rises in the morning and our backs are still in darkness. As we walk in the light, that darkness begins to fade away. This interesting verse in Malachi chapter uh, 4, verse 2. It says this, but for you who revere my name, that's Christians. You revere God's name for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness. And that's a reference to Jesus will rise with healing in its rays. And the image I got from first John here is we are looking into that the rays of the son of God. Our backs are still in darkness. And so we still struggle with those things, but it's passing away as we grow and we mature in Christ. All those things are being laid, uh, laid aside, one thing after another. And he says this love is not new. It's as old as the Old Testament. And yet it is new. It's new in the way that Jesus brought it out. It's new in the way that it's a lifestyle in Christianity. Christianity isn't new in the sense of new commands, as I said, following some new covenant. 
It's new in the way that we live our lives. It's new in the attitude of our minds. Over in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, he says, he tells you, put off the old self with its practices and, and, and its deceit and its evil desire. And then interestingly, it says, and be made new in the attitude of your minds. It's not put off the old self and make yourself new. It's put off those old things and then allow yourself to be made new, allow yourself to grow in Christ, be made new in the light, attitude of your minds. That's the light, looking into the light. It's revolutionary, this love, and then it directs our lives. It becomes the center of our lives. It becomes the integral part, uh, uh, center of the way we live our lives. It's a love centered in the same kind of love God sheds upon us. It's a love that's defined by the cross. It's more who we are rather than what we do. Let's look at verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. This is the evidence of living in darkness. And John contrasts this love of a Christian's life, a love that's being tried daily, is being found true as we display it, with this evidence of darkness. And you'll notice this in verse 8, he introduces this new old command. And then in verse 9 here, he's going to contrast it in darkness. And then he's going to go back to verse 10. He's going to evidence light again. And then he's going to come back to darkness in the last verse. There are some who claim to be light walkers. But John brings it down to the nitty gritty. And he asks you this. How are you treating your brothers and sisters? How do you treat your brothers and sisters? And if you don't treat them in love, John says it's hate. And it's one of those extremes that he comes to 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 really catch our attention. He says, if you don't love, you hate. This can be an intense negative emotion. It can be an action against another person. It can actually be passively uh, expressed in indifference, unconcerned for another person. It doesn't have to be active uh, hatred. It can be passive hatred. But it comes down to this, this focus. Where's your focus? Are you focusing on God or are you focusing on man? Claiming to be in the light, yet focusing on how you bothered me, how you sinned against me. We get, when, we, when we focus on the person and we begin to hate that person, we, we begin to hate that person in, a, in this biblical sense because we're focused on what that person has done. Hate focuses, centers in on the person. It's at odds with that person. It's thinking about what that person has done to me that's wrong. What, how I'm opposed to him. How I'm not aligned with my brother. Hate is essentially this intense focus on the negative aspect of what the other person has done in my life. And, God, and John says, that's darkness. When we intently focus on other people and the wrongs they've done to us, John says, that's hate. Well, let's look at the evidence of light in verse uh, 10. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light. There's nothing... Uh, in him to make him stumble. The focus of love is, on, is the focus of God. We're aligned with God. We're focusing on him. And love is a positive, as hate is a negative action. Love is a positive action. 
or even a positive inaction. I didn't know how else to describe that. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. You can't love as the Bible defines love based on what others do to you, but what God has done to you. 1 Corinthians 13 says love is patient. Is that an action or inaction? Both. Yeah, it's kind of both. Because the only time I have to practice patience is when you're trying my patience. (laughs) And so as you try my patience, sometimes patience is just holding back. So it's kind of an inaction. But love is kind. That's an action towards someone else. Love is not rude. That's an an inaction. When I want to be rude to you, I refrain from being rude. True love can only come from God, from a God-focused light. When you irritate me, and I focus on that irritation, I respond in irritation. Or worse. But when you irritate me, and I remember what God has done for me, and I focus on what He's done, and how He treated me, then I can treat you in love. Do you see the difference, what, what I'm saying here? Hate focuses on the person, and what that person does, and how that person treated me. Love focuses on what God has done for me, how God has treated me while you're treating me in what I think is wrong. But I focus instead of what you're doing to me, I focus on how God treated me. You can only love if you're centered on God. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other, forgive one another. If you have any grievance against someone. If we stop there, it's very, very difficult. Forgive one another, no matter what grievance you have against them. And then he says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. You see how the focus turns to him? Instead of this person, I have to forgive, I have to forgive, I have to forgive. No, you look at God and you think, how did God forgive me? If God forgave me that way, sure, I can forgive you for what you've done to me. Because I piled my sins upon God. And how did he treat me? Ephesians 5 says, love as Christ loved you. You see, it's very hard for me to love people sometimes. Especially when they're unlovely. But you know, when I remember how unlovely I am to God. And how he loved me. Then I can love the most unlovely. But when I'm focusing on you. And how unlovely you are, I hate. Oh, I'm, maybe I don't say bad words or whatever. But really, that's what John says. That's hate, because I'm focusing in on you. It's not me working harder to be more loving. You know, sometimes you do that, you'll do well. And then sometimes you'll do poorly. The only way I can successfully love the unlovable is when I look to God who loved the unlovable me. And that's when I don't mess up. And that's what he's saying here. He says here, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. He doesn't stumble when he does that. Another way, some translation says there are no, there's no occasion of stumbling. It means you don't trip and fall on your own efforts. You don't mess up. When I focus on the love that God gave for me and then I extend it to you, 
I don't mess up. When I focus on you and what you've done to me, I always mess up. Our love, when our love extends from a God-focused life, John says, you don't mess up. You walk in the light. Verse 11. I told you I was going to get through all of it today. Verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. He further expands this concept of darkness, its effects, its results in a person's life. Remember this. Darkness is essentially a person who is self-focused, not God-focused. All through John, darkness isn't being involved in great amount of sins. Darkness is a self-focused life, which is sin. It's when it's all about you. A person who is living under their own effort, their own power. They, they live this, their life this way. They see the result of their own efforts. It's a me-focused life that's manifested in what John calls hatred. Because me focus puts me where? On the throne. I'm on the pedestal. Life is all about me. And when life is all about me, guess what? You get in my way. And I'm opposed to you. I'm opposed to your interference. Nothing blinds quicker than hatred. Active hatred or passive hatred, it doesn't matter. Nothing will blind you quicker. Because when we are involved in hatred, whether it's this active hatred or this passive hatred, we're walking in darkness. We can't think straight. We don't have a clue where we're going. We don't have a clue about our relationship with God. That very hatred against someone else blinds us. And so John later on, he's going to expand. He's going to give you uh, some more information on what this hatred, hatred is. As I said, a circular thinking. He's going to come out and he's going to give some really practical things later on in the book. So we're not going to go any further today than what John says right here. Suffice it to say, John is not talking about liking people. He's not talking about people becoming your best friends. He's not talking about... You can't disagree with someone. But he's talking about an act of hatred in a negative sense, a negative action and even a negative inaction toward someone. Another way of looking at it is, at it is this. It's the antithesis of love. You define love in First Corinthians 13 and think of its opposite. When you're impatient, love is patient. When you're impatient, guess what? That's hatred. All right. Love is kind. When you're unkind. John says that's hatred. You say, we don't think of it that way, do we? We think, oh, I was, just being, I, was just, you know, I was just being a little unkind. John says, no, that's hatred. It's an act of hatred toward your brother there. Love is not rude. So when you're rude, that's hatred. Our problem is we are a contrast of inconsistencies. You're kind, I'm kind, and I'm unkind. I'm patient, and I'm impatient. I'm rude and I'm not rude. And when I see that in myself, well, I get disturbed by that. I look at that and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm discouraged by my lack of progress. I need to realize that, the, that in my life, the darkness is passing away. It's in the process of passing away. And the true light is shining in my light. My, my back is to the darkness. And I'm walking with the rays of the sun of righteousness in my face, shining on my face. And in fact, because I do fret when I'm unkind, 
and I do question myself when I'm unloving, that's actually a sign that you're in the light. Did you ever realize that? When you look at yourself and you say, I wish I had not done that. That's God working in your life. That's a spirit working in your life. When you, when you realize in the midst of your unkindness that you should be kind, that's God's light working in your life. Because the focus isn't on well, how well I'm doing in the light. If you focus on how well you're doing, you focus on your own efforts, you focus on how loving you've been lately, John says you're going to be stumbling about. You know, it's a paradox. The Bible is full of paradoxes. But as you focus on Christ and his love, his love begins working in your life. And then as his love works in his life, it extends to other people. It's not a focus on the other person. Many people do not, and I would say most, maybe all people, do not deserve a loving response. But the perfect love of Christ deserves a loving response. You see, I love because he first loved me. We'll get into that. John expands on that later on. I love because I see how he loved the unlovable me. And I extend that to you. And so my focus is on who God is and what he's done for us. Let me give you my expanded paraphrase and then we'll be done. Starting in verse 8 and 7 on the screen there. <clears throat> oh, dear special ones loved by God. I'm not writing something brand new, some command you've never heard, what you've never heard before. But what I am saying is as old as from the day of your new birth. This old command is the Logos, which you heard and, took, and which took effect in your life. On the other hand, I am writing you a unique new command. It's been tried and found true in him and in you. Because the reality is that the darkness is in the process of passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who claims I'm walking in the light yet hates his brother is in reality in darkness. Whoever loves his brother exists in the light and that person won't be tripping up all over themselves in that kind of walk. But the one who hates his brother lives in darkness. His life is one of stumbling and bumbling around without a clue of what is real and true. No direction in life because that very darkness of hate has blinded him. And that's verse 11. Makes you want to keep going, doesn't it? But we're out of time. So we'll wait. I think I've seen all four of our elders here. In a moment, Ed's going to, one of our elders, Ed's going to lead us in a song. And we traditionally use this as a time for you to come forward if you have any, any particular requests, prayer needs that you didn't write down the blue cards. Or if you've been studying the God's word and you know what to do to come in faith, repenting of your sins, being immersed in that in that uh, baptism that Ed Gove was talking about a little while ago. We're going to give anyone an opportunity as we stand and as we sing this song.